and welcome back to Know That Really Happened. I'm your host, Joey Estavagersi, and if someone could help me get this poltergeist out of here, that would be great. I keep losing my shoes. It has been a minute, my friends. Please forgive me for making you wait so long. But let's be real, I know how much y'all like anticipation. But truly, thank you for being patient with my ADHD ass. I appreciate the hell out of this, and I know you guys are going to love this episode. Now, normally on this program, we end the episode with a story from our guest, but Catherine's story was honestly too juicy, and I felt so bad cutting it down for time. I wanted to give her the proper time to really tell that story, so check out her mini-episode called The White Ship Disaster, also available now. So I'm here with Catherine Brunet. My friend Catherine Brunet, we both went to Indiana University and studied... I studied theater. You studied film? Did you yeah, also study I did theater? film production. I did a theater minor and a history minor. And what are you doing now? Who are you? I am a special collections librarian, and currently I'm in a master's program at University College London. I'm studying medieval studies, and after I graduate, I am hoping to work in a historical library with historic materials, um, teaching, and with preservation. So basically, you have the life and job that everyone who listens to this kind of podcast wants. <laughs> Congratulations. It's, it's a very fun field. I, I was very lucky to uh, discover it. I'm taking a class on medieval magic. I'm taking a class on documents and manuscripts and medieval Latin. Yeah, and my dissertation so is, is going to be about women's book collections in the 1400s. So I'm excited to do all that research, too. You don't have to say any of that. I'm just telling you that. I'm throwing out the entire outline. We're just going to talk about whatever the hell you're studying <laughs> right now. Because that was been really cool. <laughs> uh, I just keep wanting to talk to you about libraries in London, but we can't do that. I, I have three stories for you. I'm excited. Um, so, okay. I It's 11-11, which is perfect time to start. So we're going to do an episode that is titled Disaster with an exclamation point. And it's interesting because we actually, you chose this before the train derailment in Ohio ever happened. Yeah. So that's horrifying. If you haven't looked into that, please do. There are like a million GoFundMes set up to help these people. It's horrifying. And also a perfect example of what a couple of these stories that I'm going to tell are really about. And that is the failure to regulate a business. <laughs> oh boy, a true disaster, um, yes. Yeah, so these aren't natural disasters that I'm going to talk about. These are going to be situations where things just went horrifyingly wrong. And I've tried to sandwich the most tragic and depressing one in the middle so that the last one can can lift us up a bit because um, the last one, there were no deaths. The first two, there were quite a few. I'm going to end mine with the most tragic of all because everybody dies in my last one. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Okay, so let's just jump right into it. The first story I'm going to tell is about the Boston Molasses Flood of 1919. Do you know about this? I do know about this. I don't know the specifics, but I have read about it. Uh, it is wild. It is. It is. Where do I begin? So you heard that right. Molasses Flood. In January 15th, 1919, in the North End neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts, the disaster occurred at the Purity Distilling Company facility at 529 Commercial Street near Keeney Square. The company that owned the tank, U.S. Industrial Alcohol, they rushed to build it in an attempt to get ahead of prohibition because molasses could be distilled into alcohol, which could be used for explosives, and they were also in the middle of the war. So they were trying to essentially build a place where they could put a ton of molasses 
turn it all into alcohol before it became illegal and then sell it. Because they were in such a rush, they didn't hire a real builder or like designer. The designer slash builder, Arthur P. Gell, was their financial advisor, and he had no architectural or engineering experience. And he reportedly could not even read a blueprint. Excellent. (laughs) If I went up to you and said, hey, build a molasses vat, I feel like you could still build a molasses vat better than this guy did. (laughs) It's like he went down the list and said, okay, how can I do this wrong? So much confidence. (laughs) Another problem was that the laws at the time were written as such that the tank was considered a storage structure and not a building. So no permits were needed from the city of Boston to build this thing. Uh, I also forgot to mention that they were building a 2.5 million gallon molasses tank. That's what I was wondering. I was wondering how big of a structure this is. This is like a building. Yeah. (laughs) 2.5 million gallons. And the laws were also written as such that they didn't need really any zoning. So it was built in like a predominantly residential and retail area. Cool. Gel didn't seek the advice of any engineers or architects. No inspections by city officials were apparently taken. He cut a bunch of corners on safety. When they build the tank initially, you would think that they would like fill it completely to make sure there are no leaks or whatever. He poured six inches of water into it and was like, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Who didn't anybody say anything? They trusted him. I guess. Mr. Gel sounds very important. Anyway, it was deemed safe for use after pouring six inches of water into it. And as the molasses piled up over time, the tank began to leak from its rivets and access points to the point where locals reportedly knew that you could straight up just get free molasses if you like had a bottle and could manage to stand near the tank. Wow. It was that bad. And instead of fixing it, Purity Distilling responded by painting it brown. Yeah, this sounds like an early 20th century fix. (laughs) No one can see the leaks if we paint it brown. Subsequent analysis after the flood by engineers revealed two main defects in the tank's construction. The steel used on the tank was too thin to hold a full capacity load, which is another reason why that six inches of water was not useful. The steel also lacked sufficient magnesium to give it flexibility in cold temperatures. And as the mercury dropped, the steel became brittle and the molasses became less gooey. The flexibility in cold temperatures thing was a huge problem because the temperatures had been changing a lot the couple days prior and the day of the flood, like according to the almanac and also to like newspaper reports of the weather. The day before the molasses flood, the temperature rose from two degrees to 40 and then it cooled back down. Oh, my God. The day that the tank burst, it went up to 70 degrees. That would be hard to regulate from two to 70. Right. Yeah. But more than brown paint. (laughs) Yeah, definitely more than brown paint. This can't be the first time someone has stored molasses somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Is Was this the biggest molasses tank in the world? Wasn't there anyone else that he could have asked? Fucking idiot. Anyway, on January 15th, the pressure was just too much. The temperature changes and everything else. The tank failed and it sent a... Close your eyes and imagine this. The tank failed and sent a 25-foot high wall of molasses at speeds of up to 35 miles per hour down the street. That's so fast. So like a tidal wave, a tsunami of molasses. What would that look like coming towards you? What would you think it was? I don't, I would freeze probably. I don't know. 
Um, so obviously buildings in its path were destroyed. People and houses and horses and stalls and stores were crushed and suffocated. The fire station was lifted off of its foundation and carried into the ocean. Oh my god. It's like a mudslide. Yeah. Uprooting. Whoa. Like a man-made molasses mudslide tsunami. So it was obviously disastrous. It knocked down the elevated rail. It killed 21 people and injured 150 others. Wow. So what happened? Did were there uh, were there any ramifications for Mr. Gel? <laughs> corporations do as corporations do. So U.S. industrial alcohol, first of all, tried to blame the tank's failure on a quote unquote bomb placed by anarchists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's blame the anarchists. Like in court, they said this. Like they paid to have articles published to this effect that there were. Italian anarchists, because it was in uh, Boston's North End was largely Italian. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, there's Italian anarchists who bombed it. Yeah. So the court spent six years reviewing the evidence and obviously determined that there was no bomb to blame for the disaster, only the failure of the U.S. industrial alcohol and purity distilling to consider safety and, and hiring jobs. Like, what did they do afterwards? So I read reports that. Locals said it smelled like like you could smell molasses on hot days for like a decade. God. Yeah. Oh, that's horrifying. Oh, my God. In 1925, about six years after the event, the company was fined a million dollars, which was worth approximately seven million dollars now. Okay. And then from then on, the city of Boston began to demand that all engineering plans and blueprints be filed and reviewed by professionals before permits would be issued. Inspectors would scrutinize every aspect of construction before allowing structures to be built. And zoning laws started happening. I got a lot of the information about the legal part of the story from Sheffield Law, their website. And it's interesting because they had sources about how this kind of started a ripple effect in the rest of America in terms of zoning and and permits. Good. It sounds like it was a huge wake-up call that, oh, maybe this would be a good idea to uh, not just trust people to uh, do whatever they want. I'm just thinking of that that meme of that giant tank of water and someone slaps a piece of uh, duct tape (laughs) on the hole. I'm like, that's the first thing I thought of. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to need a little more than that to contain that. It's like they didn't even put tape on it. They just painted it. Just to give people their molasses, but add a little bit of lead paint to your molasses. Why not? Yeah, because people were collecting it from the outside, too. They were getting some nice little flecks of lead Uh paint in their molasses. And this was 1919? Mm Mm-hmm. I had thought this was so much sooner. This is so much worse than I imagined because this was in the century that I was born. (laughs) It's like there's this period of history wherein, I don't know, it's got to be like late 1800s to like early 1900s where it feels like people were starting to to get what like society was supposed to feel like and they were dressing like it. Like everybody was dressed like they knew what the fuck they were doing, but we were still kind of cave people. Yeah. Yeah. We look very fancy when we're building our 2.5 million gallon molasses tank and we sound like oh, yes, well, put it right here. This neighborhood will love the smell of molasses. And then this happens. Um, that was an amazing accent that you just gave the early 1900s. <laughs> I am trained in theater. I don't know if you knew that. 
<laughs> when I used to give Victorian house tours, people would ask me if I did a British accent. And I was like, no, there's an American Victorian time period. Yeah, yeah. I, I know what you mean, though, about like, it seems like, oh, we have all this industry, so we must be like getting some of it together. But it takes yeah. so much longer than it should have to unionize and to have child labor laws right. and so many even like the radium girls that happened so late to to allow those types of things to happen to workers and then just deny there was any wrongdoing in the first place i mean i guess corporations are still doing those things <laughs> just still doing those things right um so how were you how did you discover this what drew you to this net uh, this disaster well, i don't know how to answer that question look at it <laughs> I mean, how did you find a molasses disaster? Where was this, Boston? In Boston. I feel like I heard about it when I was in Boston. I think that's why I've, I know what it is. But yeah, it doesn't seem possible that that could happen. And uh, But all the same, it does feel totally possible that people would just trust that you could just build things and they would be okay. Right. Let's uh let's hope this molasses uh, vat holds up, but let's not look into it too much. Yeah, let's not. I just don't want to look at it. We'll hear eyewitness accounts of what it looked like and what it felt like to be around this flood. The story of the Cloherty family and the people who lived across from them. These mm -hmm. quotes are jarring. It really, they really speak to like how personal and like horrifying this is, I think. Because I think it, it sounds a little bit silly if I'm like, oh my God, there is a flood of molasses. I think when I first saw the headline, first heard that there had been a molasses flood in Boston, I was like, oh, it probably was up to like three feet or something. Mm -hmm. Like how silly. I bet it was gross and like annoying to clean up. But people died. Yeah, this is so extreme. Yeah. So Martin Cloherty was sleeping at his home at six Cops Hill Terrace when the flood occurred. His 65-year-old mother, sister, and brother were also in the house. The force of the tank's collapse pulled their building off its foundation and into the street and smashed it against the elevated rail line. And his mother was crushed. Oh, my God. Uh, Martin says, quote, I was in bed on the third floor of my house when I heard a deep rumble. I was asleep and the rumble did not wake me thoroughly. The first impression I had that something unusual had happened was when I awoke in several feet of molasses. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, would you even connect it like what it was? I don't think my brain would even, like, understand what was happening. The first impression I had that something unusual had happened was when I awoke in several feet of molasses. That's awful. It didn't dawn on me that it was molasses I was in. I thought I was overboard. He was able to find his sister, but he couldn't find his mother or his brother in the debris. Um, obviously, his mother was crushed. And what's even sadder, I feel like, is that his brother, Stefan, was rescued, but later he died in an asylum from what the family said was trauma from the flood. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a hundred years ago. They definitely don't have any kind of mental health support. No, anything. yeah, understandable. I'm sure he freaked out and they were like, we don't know how to emotions. So the people that lived across from the Clorides, um, one of them was Mary Musco, who lived at four Cops Hill Terrace. And she told the Globe she was standing at her window looking at the Clorides home when the explosion occurred and she saw the family's home fly into the air. Her own home rocked, but otherwise remained intact. And she knew that there were people in the house, so she ran into the street and called for help. 
She says, I was terribly frightened and I think I became hysterical. It was awful. I knew those people were killed and I saw people running every way, all covered with molasses. They were all hollering and crying. Jesus. This is heavy. I've never heard any of the actual eyewitnesses. This is very interesting and very sad. Right? It makes history feel more like people did exist and their lives were just very similar to our lives to hear their accounts of things. So I watched a YouTube video on this as well, just to see like someone else's perspective. And the guy who did the YouTube video claimed some firsthand information of the people in the building of the tank, the Mm -hmm. company, which I thought were really interesting. But like he didn't really list any of his sources. And I always I try to not. Yeah. He said something about how like the guy who owned the company was in his office and reportedly when the tank went, he felt it in the ground and he instinctively was instantly like it was the tank oh yeah yeah i bet people were waiting for something bad to happen i don't think they had any idea it would be this bad but right no know how unstructurally sound it was you had to expect something could happen like this because they were in the building that the tank was also in the molasses came at by them first but they were in his office so the molasses flooded down the hallway and trapped them in there for hours which they probably deserved (laughs) because they had filled it that day with 2.3 million gallons of molasses because they wanted to get ahead of prohibition so they were like probably up till now i wonder if they had ever filled it all the way you know i wonder if they had ever used the full capacity of it mm-hmm. and now they were trying to get ahead of prohibition they were like well yeah it'll hold this one time and then it didn't b.e kingsley who worked in the bay state railway offices nearby also described hearing a rumbling which he initially mistook for the elevated train but when he heard it again he told the post he looked out the window quote where the tank stood there was no tank he told the newspaper instead was a mighty wall of some kind, a giant wave of molasses, and it was sweeping rapidly down upon the office, gaining momentum every second. I turned and ran into the outer office, calling a warning to the clerks there. His colleagues had seen the unfolding torrent, too. He told the post they all went for the door. It was too late. A second later, it seemed there was a crash. Doors and windows were as if they had not existed. It was 15 feet high when it struck the building, and everything in the office, including myself and the clerks, was toppled over like nine pins under the weight of the wave. It's just so hard to imagine, like, how fast it could move. It seems like we literally have the phrase, slow as molasses. And I'm, like, trying mm-hmm. to imagine this this much weight moving that quickly. Ooh, there was a quote that has to do with that, actually. It was about, there was a family that was eating dinner. So it says, Robert Burnett was eating dinner with his family at 536 Commercial Street, which was opposite from the tank and had a view of the elevated rail. Quote, there was a rumble, no roar or explosion, he told the Post. I thought it was an elevated train until I heard a swish as if a wind was rushing. Then it became dark. I looked out the windows and saw this great black wave coming. It didn't rush. It just rolled slowly. It seemed like the side of a mountain falling into space. Of course, it came quickly, but we all had a chance to jump and run before the windows began to crack. Then it poured molasses. That's horrifying. Yeah, that's the horror movie. Not anything you could be prepared for. So that's what I've got. That's the story. How do you feel? (laughs) Oh, wow. I feel like a little overwhelmed. Mm. It seemed much more uh, docile in my mind. Wow, that is so scary. 
if anyone wants to know more about it, well, you have the internet, number one. But also one of my sources was a book called uh, The Dark Tide, The Great Boston Molasses Flood. So I will move on then. Man, okay, so I feel like I need to... This one's about to get really tragic. So I need okay. to let you know that the third one ends up being really funny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so keep in mind that the third one will be a more fun story because this next one is quite tragic. This is the story of the Victoria Theater disaster. Do you know this story? Not yet. It might sound familiar, but not as uh, not just from the title. So the Victoria Hall disaster, or the Victoria Theater disaster as it's sometimes called, occurred on the 16th of June in 1883 at the Victoria Hall Theater in Sunderland, England, when a rush for free toys caused 183 children aged between 3 and 14 years old to be crushed to death due to compressive asphyxia. Oh my God. No, I have never heard of this. Yeah, so that's the summary. Okay. Here's what happened. On June 16th, 1883, a children's variety show was presented by a traveling group. The entertainers were called Mr. and Mrs. Fay. At the end of the show, there was an announcement made that the children with certain numbered tickets would be presented with a prize upon exit. And at the same time, entertainers on the ground floor started distributing toys to children. The children on the upper level, you know, were worried about missing out on the toys and stuff. So many of the estimated 1,100 children in the gallery surged toward the staircase leading downstairs. This next bit of information is from the Sunderland website, Sunderland government website. At the foot of the stairs, the exit door had been opened inward and bolted so as to create a gap of about 20 inches that would allow one child at a time to leave. This was probably done to control the flow of children and make it easier to check their tickets. However, with few adults present and no one organizing an orderly queue, the children simply rushed for the door. The gap was not large enough to cope with the flood of children, and the narrow stairwell was immediately blocked. As more and more children surged down the stairs, they were pushed forward by those behind who were unaware of what was happening, and the children at the bottom of the stairs started to be crushed and suffocated by the weight of the crowd above them. Eventually, those adults in the hall realized what was happening and that children were trapped, and they started to pull them one by one through that narrow gap. The caretaker of the theater was a guy named Frederick Graham, and he tried to disentangle the pileup uh, from the back in vain. It wasn't really working. So he ran up another staircase and started diverting the rest of the children to safety to another exit. More adults at the bottom of the stairs came to help. They were still just pulling the kids through one by one until one guy literally wrenched the door off its hinges. And within half an hour, all the children had been removed from the stairwell. But a total of 183 children died in that day. Some families lost all their children. There was an entire Bible class of 30 kids from a local Sunday school that died. And they all died of asphyxia. Holy shit. <laughs> An inquest into the tragedy was held, uh, obviously, but it failed to blame anyone. There was a public outcry, and that's why the second inquiry was held, and they still never figured out who it was. However, as a direct result of the disaster, Parliament issued laws that required all places of public entertainment to have a sufficient number of exits and that all exit doors must open outwards and be easy to open. After this was also the invention of, you've probably seen those doors that have the handle that goes horizontally across and you like press on it to get out. Mm -hmm. Those doors were invented directly as a result of this. In 1894, William Codling Jr. described the crush and the realization that people were dying. So he was a child. He said, soon we were most uncomfortably packed, but still going down. 
Suddenly, I felt that I was treading upon someone lying on the stairs, and I cried in horror to those behind, keep back, keep back, there's someone down. It was no use. I passed slowly over and onwards with the mass, and before long, I passed over others without emotion. That has to have been like the world's most traumatizing event to a child. Yeah. I, how, I can't imagine continuing to live after that. No. I, what did he do? I, he probably thought about that every day for the rest of became his life. became an alcoholic, probably. Jesus. Other sad rabbit holes. There are other disasters where things like this happened, but I didn't realize how many horrifying crowd crush disasters there have been. I had never heard of this one before. Um, Brianna McClellan, our friend who also went to IU, told me about it. And there are so many more. There was the Barnsley Public Hall disaster, January 11th, 1908, in a public hall in Barnsley, west of Yorkshire in England. That was another one where a bunch of kids died. In 2015, the Mina stampede in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, during the Hajj, when over 2,000 people died. This was in 2015. Was that one inside? I don't know. Um, because I feel like I'm more used to hearing about concert concerts getting pushed forward towards like the stage but like right. never inside like that uh like the first story you mentioned but right i don't know so it happened at mecca during the hajj so i don't know i've never been there obviously i've never seen what it really looks like so i don't know how much of it is like indoor versus outdoor mm -hmm. um i've just seen pictures of like people there yeah. and I can't, I can't really tell if it's indoor or outdoor but um what also was super interesting awful i keep saying interesting but it's like awful there's another one referred to as the Hillsborough disaster, which was a fatal human crush during a football match at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, England, on uh, the 15th of April in 1989. It was at a, at a football game, and in an attempt to ease crowding, the police match commander, David Duckenfield, ordered exit gate C to be opened, leading to an influx of supporters entering the standing-only pens. This resulted in overcrowding of those pens and the crush, with 97 deaths. Wow. It has the highest death toll in British sporting history. Yeah, that's so many people. So I learned those other stories while I was rabbit holing. And then I learned about the differences between these events. And this is where I feel like it's interesting because now I get to just be like linguistic about it instead of thinking about people dying on huge levels. So there's a difference between a crowd collapse, a crowd crush, and a human stampede. Okay. <laughs> the way that people die in all of those three different things is different as well. Mm -hmm. So crowd crush is what happened at the Victoria Hall disaster. It's when people, it's why they all died of asphyxia because they all literally got crushed until they couldn't breathe anymore. Mm -hmm. A crowd collapse is what happened at the Mina stampede uh, during the Hajj in 2015. It's when a crowd becomes so densely packed that everyone's ability to stay upright is kind of dependent on everyone else's pressure on them. So then what happens is someone at the middle loses their footing or falls or something, and it literally causes everyone to collapse in on them. And then there's a human stampede, which I found a quote by Paul Torrens, a professor at the Center for Geospatial Information Science at the University of Maryland, who commented about human stampedes. He said, quote, if you look at the analysis, I've not seen any instances of the cost of mass fatalities being a stampede. People don't die because they panic. They panic because they are dying. The idea of the hysterical mass is a myth. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. The, the definition of a stampede basically is that 
so in the wild when animals stampede it's because they're fleeing from something that has like scared them or like a predator Mm -hmm. and there has really never been a case of humans dying in a stampede okay humans have died in crushes and collapses but not stampedes so here's some warning signs for you if you are a person who's going somewhere that's crowded and you think you might be in a dangerous situation that could turn into a, a crush or a collapse. For a person in a crowd, a signal of danger and a warning to get out of the crowd if possible is the sensation of being touched on all four sides. A later, more serious warning is when you can feel shockwaves traveling through the crowd from the people in the back. That's when you know this is bad. Okay. So being aware of how how much pressure is happening around you. Yeah. The interesting thing is that the critical factor is crowd density rather than crowd size. So it doesn't matter if it's a crowd of 2,000 people or 200 people. When a body of people reaches or exceeds the density of four to five people per square meter, the pressure on each individual can cause the crowd to collapse in on itself or become so densely packed that individuals are crushed and asphyxiated. At this density, a crowd can start to act like fluid, sweeping individuals around without their volition. Such incidents are invariably the product of failures of organizations and most major crowd disasters can be prevented by simple crowd management strategies. I had also heard that if you're on the edge of a crowd and it seems to be pushing forward to stop from like adding to that movement forward, if you have the ability to do that, it's good to know. (laughs) Um, And the things that I read, it said the same thing. If you can try to go sideways. Keith Still of the Fire Safety Engineering Group, University of Greenwich, said, be aware of your surroundings, look ahead, listen to the crowd noise. If you start finding yourself in a crowd surge, wait for the surge to come, go with it and move sideways. Keep moving with it and sideways, with it and sideways. Other recommendations include trying to remain upright and keeping away from walls and other obstructions if possible, but to get to the edge of the crowd if you can. Mm. How do you feel about... um? All of that. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I think that's a pretty terrifying situation. It's so worrying that it happens and has happened so recently. So to such like catastrophic in uh, in Mecca was what do you say that was like six years ago or something that was 2015. Yeah, yeah, that's horrifying that something that terrible could happen so recently. And we're still not sure what to do with those situations with that many people and and i don't think before i started before i knew about the victoria hall disaster i don't think i would have ever really considered that like Mm -hmm. there are other reasons why i don't enjoy being in a crowd but i never would have been like oh this could possibly kill me so i obviously when i found this story i was like i obviously need to look up how to avoid this like there's no way i'm proceeding the rest of my life knowing that this can happen and not (laughs) trying to prevent it So that was the uh, extremely sad story of the Victoria Hall disaster and a couple other crowd crush and um, collapse incidents. Hopefully you got a little bit of good information out of that to avoid it for yourself. And now we can move on to the story that will hopefully make everyone feel a lot better. This is the story of the 1904 Olympic men's marathon. Okay. Do you know the story? 1904? Mm Mm-hmm. No, I don't really know a lot about old Olympics. Ooh, bitch, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> so, the 1904 Olympic men's marathon. This was the first U.S. Summer Olympics ever. It was the first time the Olympics were held outside Europe at all, ever. Okay. And it was held in St. Louis because the U.S. wanted to show off the Louisiana Purchase, which is the most 
fucking imperialist American bullshit I've ever heard. What's hilarious is that actually Chicago won the bid to have the Olympics there, but the Louisiana Purchase Expo organization basically bullied Chicago into giving it to them. What is this organization? Because they said they didn't want another international event anywhere else in the U.S. while the Louisiana Purchase Expo was happening. Oh, my God. I've never even heard of such a thing. Yeah. But a lot of foreign athletes couldn't make it to the Olympics that year. Like, they physically could not make it to Missouri in the middle of the summer in 1904. (laughs) Not a lot of uh, train lines, I guess. Uh, No, the technology was not available. (laughs) When's the Transcontinental Railroad? 1870s? I feel like they could have got to Missouri. (laughs) I don't know. It was August in 1904. So only 62 of the 651 athletes who competed came from outside North America. Wow. Uh, This also accounts for all the medals that Americans won that year. And also, fun fact, those Olympics were the first time that the whole gold, silver, and bronze thing was introduced into the Olympics. Okay. So a lot of events happened over the course of these Olympics that took place over like a month, a month or two. But the event that we are going to focus on is the marathon, which was a complete and utter disaster, just like abject failure. (laughs) The series of events here feels like they could be a Monty Python sketch. So to start off, the race was run on August 30th in Missouri. Yikes. During the hottest part of the day, they started the race at 3 p.m. for some reason. Why? Which, like, if you, I, I've never run a marathon, but I know people who have, and I've done, like, similar things. They start that shit at, like, 7 in the morning so that it doesn't get yeah. hot. You don't do that at 3 p.m. No. They started the race at 3 p.m. on August 30th in Missouri, which, if you've never spent time in the Midwest in the summer, you know, it, it, I grew up in Indiana. Indiana could be very dry, but, like, in southern Indiana, in Missouri, in, like, Michigan... You're like walking in floating water, essentially. It is extremely hot and extremely wet. The course was nearly 25 miles long, and there was only one water stop available during the whole of the race, a roadside well at the 12-mile mark. Oh, well. (laughs) James Edward Sullivan was a chief Olympic organizer who made this decision about the water on purpose. Ostensibly, his reason was to, quote, conduct research on purposeful dehydration. What? Let's use the Olympics as an experiment. Let's take these highly trained athletes and see if they can survive without water. (laughs) The other thing, too, was that early on in the Olympics, the people who were competing weren't professionals. They were amateurs who just decided to sign up. So he wasn't doing a purposeful dehydration test on what's that Phelps guy's name? Michael. (laughs) Michael Phelps. He wasn't doing purposeful dehydration testing on Michael Phelps or like Serena Williams, people who have trained their bodies to be able to withstand a lot. These were your neighbor from down the street who's been kind of training for the last month to see if he could run the Olympics. This is going to be a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) I don't run at all. And I drink three bottles of water every day. The 24.85-mile course, which one fair official called, quote, the most difficult a human being was ever asked to run over, wound across roads inches deep in dust. There were, quote, seven hills varying from 100 to 300 feet high, some with brutally long ascents. 
In many places, cracked stone was strewn across the roadway, creating perilous footing. They didn't clear the, they didn't like block off the marathon route from anything. There was stone strewn across the roadway, creating perilous footing, and the men had to constantly dodge cross-town traffic, delivery wagons, railroad trains, trolley cars, and people like walking down the street with their dogs. This is like one of those obstacle courses people do in the mud. <laughs> this is the original Tough Mudder, but it's like yes. no one knew that's what they were signing up for. <laughs> they had to dodge. I mean, okay, traffic in 1904 goes a little bit slower, but still, like... On these dusty-ass roads, when not only people are, like, random people are driving by, also the race officials are driving by on cars, going, like, five miles an hour, kicking up dust in front of you while you're trying to run this race where you were only allowed to drink water once. I bet all those people are glad they didn't go. All the racers from Russia saw the newspaper the next month and were like, oh, well, glad I didn't go to that shit. What a what a what a tragedy. I missed the dusty Olympic Games in Missouri. <laughs> so there were a total of 32 racers that signed up. Catherine, how many do you think made it across the finish line <laughs> at all? Um, I don't know anybody who would want to withstand that for the entire time. <laughs> I'm gonna be optimistic and say 10. Yeah, honestly, that's very close. So, um, you know, let's give the listeners a little sneak peek at the end of the story of 32 racers. Only 14 made it across the finish line. Okay. The lowest in Olympic history. (laughs) I think that maybe the people who made the course thought the goal was to see if you could finish it. And now the Olympics is how fast can you finish it? (laughs) You aren't supposed to kill the athletes. Nobody wanted to do that. No. (laughs) So here are some of the ways people dropped out of or were otherwise detained in this race. First, I'll start with the dust people. So there were several people in this race who had like won other major races and were like crowd favorites to win and had actually high expectations who dropped out. The first one was John Lorden, who had won the 1903 Boston Marathon, and he was violently ill after 10 miles and dropped out. The second one was Sam Meller, who won the 1902 Boston Marathon. He was also overcome by dust and was actually leading halfway through the race, but dropped out at 16 miles. William Garcia of the United States was almost the first fatality of the Olympics when he was found lying in the road along the marathon course with severe internal injuries and hemorrhaging caused by breathing the clouds of dust kicked up by the race officials' cars. My God. So those are already three, the top three contenders. (laughs) dropped out because you fucked up so bad on making because they were poisoned during the race yeah they were poisoned so possibly my favorite no not possibly definitely my favorite part of this story is the wacky shit from people who actually finished this race okay let's see who the survivors were so there was a false alarm winner fred lors got cramps at one point in the race hopped onto the back of a car hopped off near the end and crossed the finish line I this love is, those people. They're gonna they're thinking smarter. <laughs> and this is a real thing that someone did in real life. This isn't like from a cartoon that someone wrote. That's the thing. Like when I find a lot of these crazy facts and I'm like, are you fucking someone someone Fred Lores was running a race and made a choice <laughs> <laughs> to very blatantly cheat during the Olympics in front of everyone. <laughs> yeah. So he was declared the winner. He had his picture taken with Alice Roosevelt and everything. Oh, what a dream. 
I know. Alice <laughs> Roosevelt shook your hand, handed you a trophy. She said, an American won. And, you know, she's so proud until someone in the crowd called him out on it. And he did the whole like, oh, I was only kidding. I never <laughs> planned to go along with it for very long. So that was the false alarm winner. The official winner was Thomas Hicks. He ended up being the winner of the event, although he was aided by measures that would not have been permitted after the 60s. Okay. It was pretty horrifying how he got across the finish line. Here we go. He was one of the early American favorites. He was one of the ones that had won other things in the past. And um, he came to the race with a team of two trainers, support crew. And at the 10-mile mark, around the same spot where John Lorden became violently ill, he collapsed. So his trainers came onto the track and forced him to stand. He begged them for a drink and they refused, instead sponging out his mouth with warm distilled water. Cool. Seven miles from the finish, his handlers fed him a concoction of strychnine and egg whites. Oh, God. Isn't strychnine poison? Yes. <laughs> strychnine in small doses was commonly used as a stimulant at the time. And at the time, there were also no rules about performance-enhancing drugs. Okay. So the Does it really enhance your performance? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> at the time, people were using it in small amounts to supposedly. I mean, people were using like meth in small amounts to clean their houses. You know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> so, at this point, the strychnine is now coursing through his blood, and he reportedly grew quote ashen and limp. When he heard that Lors had been disqualified, the false winner, he perked up and forced his legs into a trot. His trainers gave him another dose of strychnine and egg whites, this time with some brandy to wash it down, because obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always just think of the gentleman on the Titanic when I hear brandy. Just that's. <laughs> but I guess all gentlemen are drinking brandy, even when they're running a race. This is what I mean about this time period being a time where everyone looked like they had their shit together, but still <laughs> no one really knew anything. Yeah. Because he's, you know, very good at being a gentleman. Look at him. He's having his brandy on the track when the reality of the situation was, I don't care how fancy it looks. I don't care how much of a gentleman it makes you look. You're going to die. After he had this brandy, they fetched warm water and soaked his body and his head. After the bathing, he appeared to revive and quickened his pace. Quote, over the last two miles of the road, wrote race official Charles Lucas, Hicks was running mechanically like a well-oiled piece of machinery. His eyes were dull, lusterless. The ashen color of his face and skin has deepened. His arms appeared as weights, well tied down. He could scarcely lift his legs while his knees were almost stiff. Why were they forcing him to run? Like, why were they making him finish? Why did they have enough water? To soak his whole head, but not let him drink any of it. I would be so angry. He was like, can I please have some water? And they were like, no, you can have this brandy, though. We have brandy. We don't have any water. So you're like, ugh, okay, at least I'll feel like I'm drinking something. And then they get out a bucket of water and dump it on you. They're like, why is everything wet if you don't have any water? You've just been <laughs> drinking too much brandy. You can't tell what's going you can't on. Tell. Uh, at this point, he began hallucinating, and he kept repeating that the finish line was still 20 miles away, even though he was like a mile away. In the last mile, he begged for something to eat, and then he begged to lie down. He was given more brandy, uh, but refused tea. He swallowed two more egg whites. He walked up the first of the last two hills and then jogged down on the incline. It says 
Swinging into the stadium, he tried to run but was reduced to a graceless shuffle. His trainers carried him over the line, holding him up while his feet moved back and forth, and he was declared the winner. At first, when you said trainers, I th- I was thinking, like, shoes. Ah! Uh, <laughs> you realize you meant people were carrying him. Yeah, that, that's probably not allowed today. It took four doctors and one full hour for Hicks to feel well enough just to leave the grounds. And he lost eight pounds during the course of the race. What? In one day, he lost eight pounds. Oh, my God. Here's what I want to know. Was it fucking worth it? Because he clearly had, like, a deal with his trainers to be like, don't let me quit. Don't let me quit. No matter what I tell you, don't let me quit. I want to finish this race. Eight pounds? That's like a baby. He gave birth. Like, he literally looked different at the end of the race. <laughs> um, How could it be worth it? I don't know. I When there's only 14 people who are left, I don't know how much bragging rights you have. But if no, you get it... carried over the finish line. Exactly. You got carried over the finish line and you almost died, dog. Like, you really did not win this race. <laughs> And now this is all you're ever going to be known for. Like, where else on Wikipedia does Thomas Hicks' name appear? Nowhere. So that's the story of just the guy that won. Uh-huh. If if I had told you that I was going to tell you this story and I had just given you what we've talked about so far, like, this story is already fucking insane. Yeah. <laughs> There's more. <laughs> Great. Two of the competitors, Len Tonyane and Jen Mashiani, were members of the South African Swana tribe. They were in St. Louis because of the Louisiana Purchase Expo. They were part of an exhibit on the Boer Wars, and they had both been message runners during those wars. So they decided, hey, why not run the Olympics while we're here? The historic importance of their participation was probably completely unknown at the time. No one really cared that they were running the race. But they became the first Black Africans to compete in the Olympics ever. Yeah. That's pretty dope. Um, Tonyane ran the race barefoot, and he came in ninth. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Mashiani came in 12th, and Tonyane's place came as a real disappointment to his fans because they they were saying they were sure he could have placed higher if he hadn't been chased off the course for several miles by wild dogs. (laughs) Who among us, I mean? Because he got chased off the course for several miles by wild dogs. (laughs) He's still placed. And still placed ninth. That guy is a hero. In no <laughs> shoes. Wow. That's, yeah. uh, th- I think that those two guys are probably the real winners. <laughs> yeah. I want to see a movie about them. I want to see a movie about this entire situation. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, the person that I really want to see a movie about, my favorite person from this race, instead of making another fucking Marvel movie, someone make a movie about Felix de la Caridad Carvajal, also known as Andarin Carvajal. This man, as far as I can tell, no movies or like books or anything exist about him, and this is a goldmine. Carvajal was a Cuban mailman who raised his own money begging door to door when the government wouldn't send him to the Olympics. Which is already, I feel like, a really precious premise for a movie, right? What an origin story. Yeah, I would go see that already. He was 5'1 and 95 pounds. He was known in Cuba before this for doing, quote, running and walking exhibitions, which. Okay. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) That's a very specific type of person. (laughs) Yeah. Um, He like 
did a thing where he walked the whole length of the island as like a a stunt. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. So he he begged door to door to raise the money. Uh, He finally made it to America. When he got to the U.S., he immediately lost all his money gambling. (laughs) Where was it? In New Orleans. Incredible. (laughs) Then ended up walking or hitchhiking to the Olympics. He showed up to the Olympics wearing slacks, a long sleeve shirt, boots, and a hat. So we can assume (laughs) these are the only clothes he had with him. Uh Yeah. Um, An American Olympian. um, I think it was an American shot put Olympian who took pity on him and grabbed some scissors and cut his trousers into shorts for him. Oh, good. So if you look at pictures of him, it's just this, like precious. Uh, look, look up a picture of him right now. Actually, <laughs> look up Felix Carvajal. It's precious because he's just this like Cuban man with a curly mustache and a fucking black beret and trousers. Ooh, with a best. Ma- I love him. <laughs> also, I am so angry that it says his name and then it says Cuban mailman underneath. Excuse me. This man <laughs> is way cooler than that. He's more. He's an Olympian. Come on. Yeah. He looks awesome and amazing mustache. So I'm obviously obsessed with this man. I'm going to tell you all the ways that Garvajal got distracted during the race. Okay. <laughs> and then you're going to tell me what place you think he took. Okay. <laughs> so first of all, he stopped a bunch to chat and schmooze with the spectators along the way. Which I feel like is very on brand for him. Because if you're the kind of person who just who is famous for doing walking exhibitions, like you just kind of love crowd work, right? Yeah, yeah. This man that I'm looking at, he definitely likes the crowd. He really sure. does have like, I don't know what it is, that from the chest, I belong here. He looks very confident. Another way he got distracted was that at one point he saw a spectator in the crowd that had some peaches and he went and asked for one. He hadn't eaten in 40 hours. The spectator told him no, and so he stole them and ran away. Good. <laughs> Come on. Especially if this is someone, they all had, like, numbers pinned to their shirts, right? So, like, you see a racer coming by you, and they're, like, dying of hunger and thirst, and you have a box of peaches. You're going to be the asshole that says no? Fuck off. I'm glad he stole them and ran away. Yeah, I agree. Another way he got distracted was that later on in the race, he got hungry again. So he ate some apples that he found in an orchard. They ended up being rotten and made him physically ill. He spent a while dealing with that, just kind of vomiting. And then he took a nap. Were the apples fermented? Was he? <laughs> I don't know what fruit grows natively in Cuba, but I'm wondering if he saw that apples had like fallen off of the tree and was thinking like, oh, when the coconuts fall off the tree, you can eat them. When the yeah. bananas, you know. So he picked up an apple off the ground and didn't realize that soft apple means bad apple. Uh (laughs) Oh, I hope he had a good nap. I hope it was restful. So he took a nap to recover from vomiting up apples. (laughs) After stopping to chat and schmooze with spectators, stealing peaches, vomiting from apples, and then taking a nap, what place do you think Carvajal took? (laughs) Uh, Eleven. (laughs) <laughs> he finished in fourth, motherfucker. <laughs> Competition was very steep, I see. <laughs> he beat the guy, the barefoot guy? Oh, that's disappointing. He beat the barefoot guy? The person in first place had to be carried across the finish line. You got fourth and you're fine? He was just strolling. 
That's impressive. Yeah, I guess his training walking across Cuba was effective. This is like uh, the the tortoise and the hare, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was persistent and not really bothered. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he finished fourth in the 1904 marathon. He returned to St. Louis the following year to run in the inaugural All-Western Marathon, where he finished third. And then to, I feel like this is a perfect cap to the end of the movie about Felix Carvajal. He was selected to represent Cuba in the 1906 Olympic Marathon in Athens, Greece, with his expenses funded by the Cuban government. However, he disappeared after landing in Italy and never arrived in Athens. (laughs) I love this guy. They thought he was dead and an obituary was published in the Cuban newspapers, but he just showed up later in Havana. You can't do this anymore. You can't just, like, get your government to sponsor you and then disappear in Italy. Like, Right. Not with the internet. You can't do any of that good old stuff. We can't show up years later and be like, I was just hanging out. (laughs) What a great life. Unworried, unbothered, moisturized in his lane. (laughs) Eating peaches. So that is the story of the 1904 men's marathon, the Olympics. How do you feel? Wild. That is totally wild. I would never have been able to predict how wild that ended up. (laughs) I'm glad we got all those individual stories of every man's struggle or just like not struggling. I don't understand how three people like almost died and then he's just eating peaches and gets fourth. Did they take different routes? (laughs) Maybe he was like, I'm just going to go really slow and never stop. After my nap, then I'm going to not push <laughs> not push hard, but keep going. Like you said, tortoise in the hair. I wish I had that level of almost like Buddhist non-attachment. I feel like course. early Olympic stories are all pretty crazy. They they didn't like have any idea what what to do or what people could do until they just tried things. The way that early 1900, late 1800 society thought it was cool to just sort of casually experiment on the people around you. It's unreal. Let's just see what happens. So that's all I got. That was very entertaining. Thank you for uh, bookending with that one. <laughs> I knew I needed to bring the mood up in general, but yeah, especially if we're about to have an alley-oop here. We will, at the end of recording, tell our favorite knock-knock joke, and that will fix everything. Okay, great. Great. And that's the end of the episode. Thanks again so much for joining me and Catherine today. And don't forget to tune in to her mini episode, The White Ship Disaster, also available on your favorite podcatcher. Plus, you'll hear my favorite stupid joke, which is a treat in and of itself. Thank you to Alexi Chistelin of Lexin Music for the use of our theme song. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple and Spotify. It helps the rest of the nerds find this show. And I love hearing y'all's reactions to the stories. So make me happy. 